You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Thanks for downloading Stuff What You Tell Me. For more information about the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at the Stuff You Team. Be sure to check out our website, www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com for a reading list and show notes for today's episode. You come from somewhere in the massive West African area south of the Gambia River. In time, there is unlikely to be any record of your name or how you became a slave. But it could have been through warfare or raiding. Perhaps some slave catchers with guns just picked you off one day as you were going about your business but out of the protective eye of your general community. It's such a vast area that you could be from any diverse range of peoples, tribes, towns, cities, groups, and clans that inhabit it. You could be pagan, perhaps you're Muslim, as are many from that region. Whatever your name, beliefs, background, or identity, those who have taken you do not care. If you survive what you are about to endure, your background will likely add even greater adversity to your plight, thrown into incomprehensible bondage in a world of near ubiquitous and fervent Christianity. Maybe you're taken alone, maybe with others from your village or area. Whatever it may be, you are chained in a group and may not even speak the same language as the people with whom you are bound. Together, you are driven in these chains, by foot at first, through the grassy floodplains, the savannas, the forests, and the sandy plains that make up West Africa. The captors take turns to disappear, and then reappear with more poor souls, who are added to the chains. Eventually, at some point in the process, You are all piled onto small canoes where the tributaries of the great Niger River Delta drag you onwards to wherever it is you are going. Eventually, while only just surviving and while others have fallen and their bodies simply been discarded or have committed suicide rather than bear the ignominy of being enslaved, you and the rest arrive at a small port at the river mouth. Makeshift huts litter the beach and riverbanks. Around the hastily constructed docks on the water is a bustle of activity and small boats ferry some crates, but mostly people from land to the masted ships off the shoreline. It's not much of an organised process, but your abusers, who without question usurped upon your freedom, now begin to barter with strange men from the ships, selling you off in return for various goods, clothes, metals, guns. The men who purchase you here are very strange indeed, although you have heard tale of their kind before. Their skin is pale, 
but darkened as if burned, and their hair is much finer. They speak in totally strange tongues, and they laugh and drink as their men unchain you and row you in small groups to the ships to bundle you aboard. More of your group decide at this moment not to submit any longer, and rather take what little control over their lives they still seem to have. There are sharks swimming around, often feeding on the offal from the little settlement on the beach. Two men suddenly jump up, obviously having conspired to do so as soon as some opportunity arose. They leap into the school, screaming with freedom when the first bites herald their last rites. The slavers do not flinch, but shove those of you who remain into an open hatch, shaking with horror at what you've just seen. As you are pushed along, chains clunking on the wood throughout the hold, you are forced to lay on your side. There is nowhere near enough space for anyone to do much more than simply be there, nose to back. You will stay there, with no clue of what awaits any of you, for weeks. Again, if you survive. From now on, you are property, owned by somebody else. And that somebody else could change, because this is a global commercial market where people in faraway places are making economic decisions to suit themselves, but which you are going to have to live with, because, again... You are now property. Being a commodity in a completely unregulated, highly competitive market means that there are a lot of people out there who are willing to compete to be your owners. One day, there's a commotion outside, on board the deck of the ship, above you. There are shouts and very loud noises, some screaming. Suddenly, just as it started, it stops. It's quiet again. Then there are loud bootsteps that thunder over your heads. The hatch opens above you, and a different strange face with white skin and one arm missing looks down upon you and your 400 fellow enslaved. He says something in an altogether different sounding but still completely foreign language, then snorts and slams the hold shut returning you to complete darkness. At least a little bit of fresh air had been able to come in. An indeterminable amount of time later, remember you are stuck inside an almost pitch black room, the hatch opens again and some sailors appear. It was actually rare to see the sailors or anybody come below. They obviously hate coming down there. They never seem to consider... How much you all hate being held there, however. Since nobody ever really came down or removed the dead bodies on a regular basis, vomit and feces had built, dried, been added to, and now come to cake everything in a disgusting layer. Bit by bit, when this hold opens, you are all dragged out in small groups and stood before the one-armed man in charge, who inspects each and every one of you. The man in front of you has lost his eyesight at some point during the horrendous ordeals he has gone through. When the white man in charge realizes this, he signals to his subordinates, who unchain the blind man, tie a weight to his legs, and, without a word of warning, 
throw him overboard. The captain has insurance on his goods, and the payout from his insured property dying is worth more than what a blind man would earn at an auction. This is what happens when modern finance develops sooner than modern morality. The thought crosses your mind that perhaps the blind man was lucky and that you too could end this terror now and follow him overboard. You're not sure what stops you doing so. There seems to be no hope. Perhaps it is disbelief that this could possibly get any worse. Spoiler alert, it's about to get a whole lot worse. Because you're a woman. You and your husband were taken together, removed from your children and parents. He is in the same small group as you for the inspection, and when your turn arrives, the captain begins to molest and fondle your breasts and grab you between the legs with his only hand. Your husband cannot restrain his anger and struggles against his chains in a vain but ferocious attempt at retaliation. The captain stops and looks at your husband with disgust and disdain. He walks over and punches him hard in the mouth. Your husband falls down to the deck and looks to immediately bound up again, but the captain's men pin his arms, and the captain holds his head down on the deck with the sole of his tattered boot, and then slowly raises his head to look at you. A cold, unbearable fear runs through your whole body. Neither you nor your husband can do anything about the fact that now being somebody's female property, those with license to utilize you can and will whenever they want and however they please. The captain orders the remainder of the slaves be taken back below. You are then forced to endure hours of torment as you are raped by him and who knows how many people, who knows how many times. Your husband is chained to the main mast and made to watch, a humiliating demonstration that he is no longer a man. He and you are just property. Through ways like this, for more than 300 years, over 10 million human beings were shipped across the world into forced servitude. Their lives were ruined, their spirits crushed, and all hope eroded. They were forced into what was perhaps the most entrenched and ancient of all human institutions until only 150 or so years ago. Slavery. This story takes place in the first years of the 19th century, at the end stages of the apex of human enslavement. So many millions perished. If they didn't, if they managed to survive getting to and being worked to the bone on the other side of the world and even have families, their children and children's children and so on would be born into a world that told them that they were somebody else's property and nothing more. So great and varied are the different experiences that slaves across time would have endured, especially with the rampant global slave trade of the 15 to 1800s, that it is difficult to comprehend the scale and magnitude of slavery's impact on so many individuals and societies. Through all this, however, not 
All spirits were totally crushed. Not all hope eroded. Even amongst those who might have at times felt hopeless, opportunities would arise for them to rebel and defy and stand up against such an ancient and awful human custom. In this series, we will put a spotlight on just a few of the many acts of rebellion and defiance which together brought about the end to institutionalized slavery. You, along with 63 other African slaves who are in the hold of that ship with you, taken from the region known generally as Senegambia in 1804, sold to a British slave ship, and then taken by a one-armed French privateer, will end up disembarking in the Viceroyalty of Rio de la Plata, being put on an auction block and sent overland, in chains, into the horrid Spanish-American slave system, one that was undergoing a free market revolution lubricated by the enslavement of millions of people. Although your spirits and your bodies may well eventually be crushed, it will not be without a fight. As a group of people refusing to be enslaved any longer, you will rise up to take back your freedom and, at first, somewhat succeed. The story of your rebellion will be retold in different ways and at different times, and it will become one to be held up to a global, slavery-accepting society, occasionally demanding that that society take a decent, bloody look at itself. This is the story of the slave mutiny aboard the Spanish cargo ship, The Trial, and those who, when thrust into a world of misery, would do whatever they could to not submit. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me, the podcast telling stories of rebellion and resistance in history, art, and culture. This is the first episode of the series Abolishing the Norm, Episode 1, Slavery's Trial. This episode is brought to you by every unknown person who ever has stood up is standing up and will stand up against slavery, both the enslaved and the free. We will never know many of their names, their deeds, how they suffered or how they did not immediately succeed in attaining their or someone else's direct freedom. We are sorry that we cannot tell their stories. Hopefully, in telling what few stories we do, we manage to properly commemorate the fact that although they may not have succeeded in gaining their or someone else's individual freedom at the moment of their defiance, each and every act of rebellion contributed towards the eventual demise of slavery and the overwhelming general acceptance that there truly must be freedom for us all. From the moment we are born, we are told we must obey. It's a mistake to rebel, treason to defy. Change is a dreaded thing, until it's not. These are the stories of those who disobey and their acts of defiance, world-changing or inconsequential, the characters who forge their own paths and the cycles of change driven by women and men willing to stand up, look authority in the face and say, stuff you and stuff what you tell me. 
The age of exploration in the 15th century kicked off the global slave trade amidst a fervor for colonization, exploitation, and globalized commerce and industry that hasn't really subsided to this day. By the 17th century, on intensely hot, humid, often sandy, flat plantations across the Americas, groups of enslaved Africans worked their way through fields of mostly sugarcane, but varyingly also tobacco, rice, indigo, and other agricultural produce as well. These slaves were overseen often by poor Europeans, holding ready-to-use whips or rods or muskets, whose grandparents, parents, or they had likely come over to the Americas to work and try to scratch out a better life for themselves. Being in the Americas was generally loathed by poor European workers. They easily dehumanized the Africans over whom they had control, and many would have put their contempt for their own existence into the execution of their already abusive work. The slaves, some of them with machetes, would chop down the long sugarcane stalks, whilst others cleaned them up and loaded them onto carts. The stalks would then be trundled across the uneven and sandy ground towards the processing plant, a stifling hot, circular wooden barn with either a wind, water or animal driven mill as well as a boiler. These were the days before occupational health and safety was a thing even for paid workers let alone property like slaves. Injuries were rife either from the boiler or the machines which were known to tear off limbs and inflict gruesome burns. More slaves worked in the unbearable heat to process it into sugar or molasses, or then rum. All of this, the harvesting and processing, happened in staggered cycles, as did the preparation, sowing, and fertilizing that happened in the wet season. The work was constant, with rarely a chance to sleep, and never any free time. The product, when ready, would be loaded up by more slaves onto horse-drawn carts, on which it would be taken to a port on the coast and loaded onto ships engaged in the Atlantic Triangular Trade. The sugar and rum would be taken to Europe, or eventually New England's nascent colonies, where it was lapped up by an adoring European market, beginning what would become a long-standing and somewhat abusive relationship with sugar addiction, that has also pretty much never subsided. The ships in European continental and British ports, now empty, would not be for long. Profits off the sale of the sugar products would then be used to buy manufactured goods from factories that, though still relatively small, were popping up all around the place. These factories began riding the initial ripples of increasing profit that would become the tidal wave of European industrialization in the late 1700s and the subsequent global modern economy. Loaded with guns, textiles, and other products, these ships would then embark on a voyage to the West African coast. Portuguese traders in the 1400s had been the first Europeans in this age to raid African settlements, capturing and no doubt killing and raping countless victims. Eventually, Portugal would come to agreements with African leaders to trade goods for slaves, and so enter into the already ancient and established African slave trade, widely seen to be, like throughout much of history, 
a product of war and conquest between local groups and entities. In 1581, Spain, arguably at its imperial zenith, absorbed the throne of Portugal. Spain outsourced its slave trading to foreign merchants and forbade Portugal as a state from participating, even though most of these merchants were still Portuguese. This coincided with a bunch of things. Spain, although huge and powerful with boundless resources, was still pretty economically queasy and often faced bankruptcy. Their ability to defend some of their or Portugal's territorial holdings, as well as their ability to wield any sort of monopoly over the Atlantic trade routes, were both proven inept. Other European powers were, by the late 1500s, really hitting their own early modern and global seafaring straps. These were the French, the British, and, as we at this podcast like to bang on about all the time, the Dutch. Ships from these kingdoms and aspiring nations, remember the Dutch were, at this stage, still engaged in a multi-million person thumb war against the Spanish for their own independence, which by the 1600s they basically had in all but name, but anyway, seafarers and traders from all these places began foraying into the African slave market, or raiding the African coast. More European ships began to traverse the globe, following an example largely credited to British boat, ocean, and money enthusiast John Hawkins, who in 1564 first completed what became the Triangular Atlantic Route. These ships can be seen as the fomenting of a global nightmare that would span 300 years and involve the suffering of over 10 million people, as well as their innumerable descendants who would be born into the bondage begun for and sustained by the pursuit of profit. It is definitely incumbent on us to talk briefly about the Spanish mines in their American colonies, such as Peru. Unbelievable quantities of silver and gold had been discovered and claimed by Spain, who found in these mines immense sources of wealth to stave off their economic troubles. It's been calculated that between 1500 and 1800, Mexico and Peru produced about 80% of the world's silver. About 30% of that is thought to have ended up in China via Spanish debts being paid to debtors like the British, who used the silver to buy luxury goods from the East. The biggest silver mine in the world for over three centuries was in Potosí in the Vice Royalty of Peru, modern-day Bolivia. The Spanish took over the Incan system of forced labour and recruited, well, recruited's a pretty soft word, but forced Indian people to work in the mine. Some of these people were paid wages, however they were forced to buy food with and pay taxes on the small amount they earned, which meant they were always in debt. If they were in debt, they were not allowed to leave, and thus they were trapped in a vicious cycle of enforced labour. Death was extremely likely, usually due to mercury poisoning. It is thought that in the 300 years the mine was in operation, around 8 million natives, 7 out of every 10 who worked there, died. No wonder it was known as the Mouth of Hell, or also as the Mountain That Eats Men Alive. Although we are focusing mainly on the slavery of Africans, and it is largely because that particular institution became the one identified with abolition, 
There is no way to truly comprehend the scale of devastation wrought by colonialism in the enslavement and forced labor of millions of indigenous people. Eight million people in one mine is genocide. So the mines and the need to find workers to replace the thousands of mostly Incans dying in them also drove European nations to more fully engage and bolster the African slave trade networks. The nature of the relationship between European and African slavers is actually much debated. Whether there was an equanimity in the culpability of both parties, or multiple parties, or a level of exploitation on the part of Europeans towards what became an African dependency on manufactured goods, that is all at the heart of this debate. Like everything, there is probably a mix of all decent arguments, and there is little doubt that the domestic African slave trade increased greatly because of the demand by European ships arriving at African ports and European slaver parties venturing into the hinterlands with their guns and goods. Hierarchy, power, and establishment, as well as the different narratives of fear and security that keep them upheld by any society, would likely have fed the willingness of different African communities to begin participating more and more in the slave trade. Guns give power. Goods give prestige. Anyway, the vast majority of slaves in the 1500s, when the industry was dominated by the Portuguese and Spanish, would end up in their South and Central American colonies. For most of the 1500s, the Portuguese were the only people who knew how to get to Asia from Europe by ship. It involved a stop in the Americas, and they had brought the Asian sugarcane realizing the quality of land in Brazil for its production. Labor was free, and potential for profit was enormous. As time went on, the search for gold, silver, as well as the production of coffee and cocoa and much else kept Central and South America as the main destination for African slaves, provided they survived their initial enslavement and atrocious passage across the ocean. The first 200 years of the Atlantic slave trade is thought to have accounted for around 20% of total slaves taken from Africa to the Americas. More than half were taken in the 1700s alone, whilst nearly 30% of the total number happened even after Britain and the US officially banned the transatlantic slave trade in 1808. So this is how it came to be, that... Over the course of the years 1803 to 1804, sugarcane or tobacco or some other agricultural product was, via this triangular trade route, transformed into you, a female product shoved into a hold with hundreds of other living, breathing products. In this global marketplace, the amount that was paid for you is directly related to the quality of the raw product being put into a global commercial system on the backs of millions of people whose fate you now share. People who, before you, were also taken from their homes, taken across the world, and put to work as slaves. You don't know this, of course, but upon arriving off the Argentinian coast, the French privateer, the horrible one-armed French captain called Mordet, who has already caused you so much abuse, 
has written to the Spanish authorities in Buenos Aires asking for permission to sell you and those of you who remain alive. The age of exploration in the 15th and 16th centuries expanded into the worldwide imperial and market-based colonialism of the 17th and 18th. This provided the structure for the social, political, and economic consequences of the Enlightenment. Somehow, the worship of reason also fostered a new age of rampant global mercantilism, bolstered by a fervor for Enlightenment ideals of liberty and equality. For the ever-wealthier merchants dealing in and using slaves in South America in the 18th century, the demand of mas libertad, mas comercio libre de negros, more liberty, more free trade of blacks, led to imperial deregulation of the trade by Spain. Now, Spanish-American merchants could go and pick up victims from Africa themselves and trade them freely amongst themselves and others, cutting out the imperial middleman. At the same time as merchants with liberal ideas were gaining greater profit and power, it's important to remember that these colonies still pretty much all belonged to large colonial European powers. The American, French, and in extremely complex ways the Haitian revolutions owed much of their tumult to the collision between these sources of power. The divinely sanctioned royal decree of the old world being challenged by the proclamations of liberty and self-determination that had come to define the new. As Europe was wrought by the French Revolution and its ramifications, the colonies in the Americas were subject to the consequences, feeling directly the effects of the alliances and enmities of colonial European powers that were playing out on both battlefields and ship decks around the world. Throughout the 1770s, 80s, and 90s, these ideas of liberty that defined the American Declaration of Independence and the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen were carried across the globe on thousands of ships, by all classes. In the slave colonies and plantations, European administrators across the Americas just people with their own interests and backgrounds who had been sent to the other side of the world into decision-making positions were trying to make those decisions in accordance with an increasingly out-of-touch colonial structure as it came under attack from the potency of liberal ideas like equality. These ideas, once spread, were not only spoken about and contemplated on amongst wealthy mercantilists railing against taxation and regulations forced on them by these foreign administrators who governed on behalf of imperial powers a world away. Liberal ideas were also adopted by the lower class working whites, generally angry with their lot in life and their exclusion from the wealthy elite. As mentioned, much of this anger would have been felt by the slaves who existed under their unremitting authority. For free blacks and coloreds, these ideas also gave an anchor to equality. Although not enslaved, and whatever their individual economic prosperity or lack thereof, anyone not white still suffered the oppression, consequences, and limitations of the racism and dehumanization of non-whites that defined this final chapter in legal human slavery. Crucially though, these ideas also reached the ears of the enslaved themselves 
heard in parlors, workshops, coaches, and factories, and spread through the living areas of the enslaved at night. As Morday waits aboard his ship for permission to sell you from the Viceroy, the slave revolution of Saint-Domingue, beginning in 1791 and lasting over 10 years, has only just ended in that country's proclaimed independence as the Republic of Haiti. It had been a revolution in which the massive slave population had struggled for their freedom throughout, and for the first time in history, succeeded. There had been more than one phase dedicated to the mass slaughter of whites. Of all the concerns to be troubled with, slave insurrection is amongst the greatest for the white colonists. Even in Montevideo, only months before your arrival there in chains, Montevidean slaves had fled north of the city, claiming land and declaring it an independent republic named Liberty, Fraternity, Equality. It is thought that they had been talking to black Haitian sailors in Montevideo beforehand. Certainly there was no coincidence in the name of their new and short-lived republic, it got quashed very quickly, and its reference to the popular ideals of the French Revolution. The massive population of enslaved people makes the authorities ever worried. Rampant slave smuggling, the huge demand being a result of the free trade forces within the slave market, is currently being tackled in an effort to curb the ever-increasing influx of people who have nothing to lose. So when the one-armed Morday wrote to the Viceroy of Rio de la Plata, asking permission to sell his captured slaves, which include you, the Viceroy has a lot of things on his mind, and many reasons to say no. For the Viceroy, the high quantity of slaves is a concern, especially if they have been exposed to these infectious liberal ideas. When the Viceroy finally responds to Morday's request, he refuses it. Morday is only given permission to sell 70 of the more than 350 remaining alive, just enough for him to raise the money to repair his ship and depart as soon as possible. This does not really come as a surprise to Morday, who has a backup plan. The ship is sailed up the sheltered bay of Montevideo so that it can be careened. The crew is going to be changed over and carpenters put to work making repairs. The Viceroy expects this. What he doesn't know is that after Morday sells the 70 slaves to a ship called the Eulalia, he is going to sail out of controlled waters, paint his ship black, change its identity, and then rendezvous secretly with the Eulalia and sell the rest of you. But you also know none of this. All you know is that a few days later, you are all taken off the ship, rowed to the shore on the outskirts of the city, and deposited in a ramshackle settlement, a pit of absolute misery, developed by the city to keep slaves waiting to be sold or moved on. As you are pushed forward, you see piles of corpses and men digging holes to throw them in. It occurs to you that it would be the worst place you'd ever been, had you not just been on that ship for so long. The open air, although putrid with the stench of the dead and waste around you, is still the most welcome thing you've ever sensed, along with the small amount of much cleaner water that is given to you. Here, you will all try to survive, wherever here is while the ship is being repaired. You are there for some time, and then, 
One day, some sailors from the ship enter the makeshift village. They begin selecting some of you. These will be the 70 that are being sold with permission from the Viceroy. You are not one of them, but your husband is. Once you had spotted him in the ship, you'd never let yourself lose sight of him for long. The time in this awful village has only been bearable because you have been able to be together. Now, as he is pulled out of your shanty hut that you share with about 20 other beings and joined to the chain gang being assembled in the cramped, waste-covered causeway, you struggle to hang on to him. You shriek and you yell and you cry. He fights the men, but they beat him relentlessly until they have him locked up and defeated on the ground. He cranes his head to look at you again, but is once more hit by one of the sailors. As they take him away, you try to run along with them, but you yourself then get hit with a heavy object. You collapse in the dirty sand on the ground, dazed and confused. In between blacking in and out, you wonder how there is any way to know if you will ever see him again. You have no idea where in the world you are, what is out there, or even why you have been taken. You sometimes can't even understand the language of the people also chained next to you, let alone those holding you in chains. If anything has been spoken to you about your destiny by the slavers, there is no way to know. Where your husband has gone, and what you might have to go through to possibly find him again, is simply beyond the realms of anything your imagination can muster. The rest of you are loaded back onto the ship you'd been on. You barely notice the anger teeming around you and having to re-embark, or that the ship has been cleaned, or that it is stocked with tubs of black paint with which it will be covered in an attempt to change its identity once out of Spanish waters. You just don't care. Morday's plan doesn't work. As yet completely unbeknownst to any of you held below, the 70 slaves sold legally to the Eulalia, including your husband, went into open revolt once they were out to sea. They took over half of the ship and barricaded themselves for days, their rebellion not suppressed until official Spanish soldiers had been deployed and guns had been turned and used on them. But where Morday's plan really didn't work, is that Spanish authorities recognized the ship's masthead, despite the new black paint, and they were not fooled by his attempted ruse. As always, you experience all of this deep in the bowels of the ship, tied up to be lying on your side, nose touching the pustulant and putrid smelling neck of the person lying on their side next to you, just as the nose of the person behind you is doing the same to yours. With the entire ship and cargo seized by Spanish authorities, all of you are once more taken off the ship, and this time sent to Buenos Aires to be held in pens and exhibited at the slave auctions. Some of the rebels who had gone into revolt on the Eulalia are rejoined with you. They can give you no word of your husband, though, of whom there is no sign. They cannot tell you where he is, or whether he lives, or died. In Buenos Aires, you are all split up and thrown into various pens where the auctions are held. After a few days, you are taken out of the pen and chained up with 63 others. All of you have been bought together. The transfer of you, along with these 63 other piezas, pieces, 
is officially logged in the books. Although more often as esclavitud, the servile enslaved, on this occasion actually as negros pozales, raw blacks, straight from Africa. You are chained up and driven out of the settlement and into countless wagons that make up a huge caravan due to set out carrying people and goods and people who are goods. You travel on the wagons for a full lunar cycle. It's not as bad as the ship in that you can stretch your legs, get time off the wagon and occasionally bathe. It is as bad because you and other women are still repeatedly raped along the way. Others are beaten or fall sick and are left to die on the wayside of a road that goes from being a boggy marsh filled with the bones of animals long dead to a sandy, uneven surface just as tough for the wagons to overcome. You saw similar terrain when you were first taken in Africa and hauled along the rivers in chains. If it weren't for the strange birds and animals, you might be convinced that you were not all that far from home. As the convoy approaches Mendoza, the Andes rise ominously in the distance. These are unlike anything you've ever seen. Tension and even greater fear begin to arise amongst all of you. You are never told where you are going or what you are doing throughout all of this. Although by now you have come to understand some words of Spanish, and there seem to be some amongst you who understand the slavers' commands pretty well, there is no common language for you all to communicate with each other or with those in control of your lives. As the mountains get larger and larger, so does the fear in your heart that you are all going to be forced to go over them. After Mendoza, you begin to descend, still in the wagons, into the foothills of a deep valley. You hope with all your heart that you just continue alongside the massive range ever growing on your left and which in the afternoon cuts a deep and dark shadow over you all. But the wagons eventually begin to ascend, forced into single file now. And then one day, they stop. You are all pulled out of the wagons and onto the now too narrow path. You'd notice it getting colder the last few days, but now, out in the open, you are freezing. The air is also very thin, and you struggle to breathe. But there is no time for any of you to collect yourselves as you are lined up and iron neck collars are put around your necks, binding all of you together in smaller groups. The whip of one of the slave drivers sitting up on their horses cracks on someone's back, whom you hear try to stifle a scream. You all quickly get the idea that you must continue up the path on foot, and there is a general stumbling surge forward the chains between your necks clunking over the sound of shuffling, cold, bare feet. The path, from the beginning, looks and feels like death. It steeply zigzags up, and the black, rocky mountain faces all around you stare down at your miserable procession, waiting to see a tired foot make an erroneous step, and an entire group be flung over the precipice and into the abyss below. This happens more than once. A man in your group who speaks a language not that different to your own insists that you should all jump. You yell at him to shut up. Although you see the sense in suicide as a means of escape, you do not want to do it too far from the sea. You like to think that those who jumped into the sea did not die. 
but actually flew back to Africa. If you perish here, you and your spirit will remain here forever. Others cannot go on. They do not wake in the morning or simply stop moving along the way. The slavers, you suppose to save time, do not bother to remove the irons conventionally, but instead chop off the heads and limbs of the deceased. Their useless bloody necklaces now hang limply down. The sight of this just adds itself to the series of horrors that you've witnessed and experienced since you were taken. You just try to stay quiet and unnoticed, ever hungry. But still, there are nights when you are unchained and passed around. You don't resist anymore, just because the bruises and cuts of their beatings makes breathing the cold, thin air even harder the next day. You wish you would, but you feel too hopeless. After three days, you are convinced you will never breathe properly again. You beg internally that the climbing stops. Mountains still loom over you. But at last, the path seems to be flattening out. As you collapse that night, all you hope is that tomorrow, you don't have to climb anymore. That night, as you huddle amongst the wretched mass of your fellow enslaved, you stare up at the moon which waxes and wanes here from the wrong direction for some reason that you cannot figure out. Still, the moon is at least somewhat familiar, if backwards. Tonight, something is different. There is an excitement rising between the chains, although you feel hazy and semi-conscious from the exertion and the lack of air. Maybe the excitement is in your head, but there is definitely more chatter, Amidst all the indecipherable babble, someone says in your language that Ramadan has begun. Many amongst you are Muslim, and those who are not are mostly still familiar with the practices of Islam, given its widespread in West Africa. It is a holy moment. Although you can't imagine how anyone could fast when already starving, or how anyone will wash themselves, in your delusion, you hear someone whisper that If Ramadan has begun, when it finishes, the holy night of power will begin, marking the moment that the Quran was first revealed to Muhammad by Allah. The whispers continue that on that night, Allah will deliver his faithful from suffering. As you fall into unconsciousness, these words also give you some small comfort, given how many faithful you are bound to. You hazily feel spiritually bonded with every slave there, even though you have all been reduced to nothing, huddled together, under a backwards moon, freezing on top of the world. The descent does begin the next day, and is certainly less tough, although never easy. When you arrive in the port of Valparaiso, around eight months after being sold and bought in Buenos Aires, You all feel the fear that you are to be boarded again on another ship. You have learned by now, though, that if the slave drivers notice any discontent or unruliness, they will punish it with little self-containment. By now, you are so shell-shocked by this whole ordeal, the capture, being locked in the bottom of the ship, your husband being taken from you, being raped repeatedly on a frequent basis, being beaten, being hungry constantly, being kept in a pen and sold at an auction block, being driven through a totally alien landscape before being force-marched up and down a cold 
and desolate mountain range. You have detached yourself as much as you can from the world around you. You may still be in your body, but it is no longer yours, and you have left it as much as you are able. You may as well commit suicide, but you cannot bring yourself to have that kind of control. They have taken it all from you. There is immediate discontent as you are all crammed again onto a new ship. This one is called The Trial, and is Spanish-owned. You see the captain, whose name is Sereno, standing next to another man who is dressed in very fine clothes indeed. You don't know it, but he is your owner, Aranda. He will be sailing with you. As you are embarked, although there is no struggle, the air is thick with the ferocity of hatred coming from some of the enslaved, particularly some of the men. A few have become leaders amongst the groups in giving support and encouragement, being selfless with rations and urging the kind of solidarity that you felt the night that Ramadan began. These men were probably leaders of their communities, or at least they behave as if they would have been. Two in particular, a father and his son, whom history will come to know as Babo and Mori, have taken eminent positions amongst the dispossessed. They are the ones who kept track of the moon and could determine the cycles. They spread the word about Ramadan, and you have even seen the elderly father guiding others in making secretive prayers towards the east, towards where he has calculated that Mecca must be. It is they who will know when Ramadan ends, and when the night of power is. On this second ship, handed over to the sailors, you are relieved to discover that you are all kept up on the deck, and not below. The hold of the ship is full, so you all remain huddled amidships, unchained but under constant guard. Still there is a palpable defiance amongst your whole group, women and men, and the orders of the sailors are followed only with obvious contempt in the eye. Many, you notice, when told to sit, just stare back, until the weight of a wooden stick is brought crashing into them. When told to be quiet, they are, but only for a moment or two. As soon as the guards' backs are turned, they lean into each other once more, whispering in secretive tones. The sun comes up three times between when you leave port and when Babo and Marie and other men rise up and take over the ship. You are all aware that it is going to happen by then. In the middle of the night, around 30 of them stand, conspiratorially silhouetted against the shine of a moon that while only in its first quarter, seems exceedingly bright. This, you think to yourself, is something that you've heard spoken about as a sign of the night of power. It is on this auspicious occasion that Babo has chosen to rebel. They have acquired knives and axes, having gained the conspiracy of some young slave sailors already working aboard the ship. The bosun and the carpenter, on watch over you, have undutifully fallen asleep. They pay for it with their lives as the leader of the group, Mori, stabs one. His father, Babo, slits the throat of the other. He then looks at the group and indicates that they carry on. The upper levels of a ship's hierarchy sleep aft of the main mast. As the men begin to head in that direction, you hear the melody of an old song, recognisable from your childhood. 
One by one, the women around you pick up the song and begin to get hauntingly louder. At first, given the loudness of a ship at sea, it seems as though just parcels of the song come dropping in, carried by the wind. But then the woman next to you begins singing, and you feel the weight of demand in her voice, and the voices of those she has joined. Tonight is Islam's holiest, and whether amongst the Muslims on board or not, you are all singing together to make a statement. The torment, hardship, exhaustion and humiliation of your plight is going to end here. Your voice gets louder as the song repeats. There is some screaming and louder battle noises to be heard from the direction in which the rebels have gone. All of your voices just get louder to fortify the men in securing their and all of your freedom. It takes a few hours, but your uprising is a success. 18 sailors are killed in the process, and the captain, the 29-year-old Spaniard named Don Benito Sereno, is holed up in his cabin, shooting at anyone trying to come and get him. Barbo quickly organizes that three defeated sailors, bound up but for their mouths, be thrown overboard right next to the captain's cabin, one after the other. Whether it is just the screams of the third man or a combination of them all, Sereno is finally compelled to capitulate, out of fear that every man of his will otherwise follow them. When he does, he and the rest of the non-slaves are tied up until a plan can be formulated. Your owner, Aranda, is dragged out. Babo wants to know what his role is. Once it is found out, he is sent back to his cabin to be kept under guard. Babo is definitely in charge of the rebel group, and all of you have gathered behind him. It is easy for you, as he comes from the same region as yourself, with an easily understandable dialect. Up until now, there have been zero opportunities or moments during your whole ordeal where you've seen a possibility of recovering your liberty. Suddenly, you have it. You may be adrift on a wretched and poorly kept ship, unknowingly thousands of miles from your home, but you are technically free. Marie has somehow learned enough Spanish to relay his father Babo's orders to the captain and translate between the two. You don't remember exactly when you started noticing Babo and Marie in the variously changing chattel groups you've been in, but certainly it was somewhere around the fetid slave settlement at Montevideo. Had they been on the ship with you for months before? It's impossible to say. Babo seems to be a religious figure. Now, with their freedom, he dutifully leads the eastward-facing prayers, which will now happen five times a day. The night of power has truly been a night of power. You all set to work trying to organize things on the ship, although none of you really have any idea of what to do. You start cleaning a section, and others join you. Babo and Mori stand with the submissive and crestfallen-looking captain. You hear Babo ask him, through Maury's Spanish, if there are any places near here where free people can go and be free. The captain shakes his head. During the time you were held in the pens at the slave auctions, there had been a lot of chatter about a place called San Domang, or Haiti, where thousands of slaves on an island had risen up and fought a long struggle for their freedom. 
they had cast their oppressors off the island and declared themselves something called a republic, an independent nation of free people making decisions for themselves. Babo demands the captain tell him if such a place truly exists. By the looks of it, Sereno insists that it does not. Babo and Mori and other leaders of the rebellion then confer in quiet, incomprehensible tones and Mori turns again to the captain. Sereno, he tells him, must sail them back, either to Senegambia or to the Cape Verde Islands off the West African coast, known to the Spaniard as San Nicolas. Although Sereno makes protestations, Maury holds his knife in a very threatening manner. You hear Babo tell him to tell the captain that they will all ration and do whatever it takes, and also that he has no choice. Maury babbles in Spanish, and the intimidation of the knife in his hand fills in where perhaps his vocabulary is lacking. Sereno submits, and with his remaining sailors, goes about setting a course home. Or so you think? It's actually impossible to know. You former slaves might by now be in control of this ship, but none of you know the first thing about controlling a ship. Days pass, conditions get worse, and all you see is the strange, endless blue of the ocean. You all know that should you come across any other ship, you will be retaken and re-enslaved. Your liberty belongs to each of you now, and you all swear that it shall never be another's again. Moray keeps a close eye on Sereno, who you think is navigating falsely, not heading back for Africa, but sailing into oblivion, hoping to find another ship. The leaders think this as well, and ask him constantly if he is sailing you in circles. Despite his denials to the contrary, this is actually exactly what Sereno is doing, although Moray cannot confirm it. You have no idea why, but one day, about 20 days following the takeover, your former owner, Aranda, is dragged out onto the deck, bleeding profusely with multiple stab wounds in his chest. Babo has decided that he must die, and two of his men already went in and stabbed him in his sleep. Again, the women around you begin singing, and you join in, although by now you're not sure if it's out of desire to see him dead or just by rote. You're not sure if you feel anything anymore, but you sing along with the others. Why Aranda must die remains a mystery. Perhaps Babo thinks this will ensure that should you get back home, your owner will not come looking for you again. You watch as you sing, but you think about how easily you have all been passed from hand to hand, master to owner, from hold to pen and from terror to misery over the last year. Maybe there is no one singular owner, but you are all subjugated and possessed now by a new, terrifying world that is dominated by these creatures who see you as an object and handle you as such. Killing one owner might not be as securing as it would seem. Aranda is still alive, bleeding and groaning on the deck, but the men who dragged him out now tie him up, lift him to the rail of the ship and throw him overboard. Then, as you and your companions continue to sing a dirge of death, three more white men, you have no idea who they are, are also dragged out, stabbed, tied up, and thrown over. Then, although you think it might be finished, a number of injured sailors, in a poor physical condition since the fight on the Night of Power, are also cast into the ocean. 
When this is all over, Marie looks at Sereno and says something in Spanish, pointing out at sea and then threateningly at the end of the ship where the rest of the white prisoners are being held. You guess correctly that it is a warning to get them to Africa or the captain and all his people shall suffer the same fate as those just gone. Despite these threats, Barbo and Marie and the others are convinced that they need more assurances. Not long after, they write up a contract, which you think must be in Arabic. It states that, in exchange for Sereno taking them home, they will return to him his ship and cargo. In this world based on contracts, promissory notes, and mutual exchange, this should make sense to the Spaniard and bind him to his word. The contract is taken to Sereno, where you suppose all three men's marks are put to it. 53 days after you slaves had grabbed your freedom, and a month since the contract had been signed, you seem no closer to Africa. Truthfully though, there's simply no way any of you can know if that is the case or not, as you don't know whether you originally came from the east or the west, having been kept in the hold for the entire voyage. There is no drinking water left, and two women and their babies have recently died nearby the space where you normally reside. Food is disgusting now, and sparse, and although that is nothing new, given the general conditions of the previous year, the ship had been fully stocked when you took it over. Although some rationing had been insisted on by Babo, you had all at first definitely eaten way better than you had in a long time. Afterwards, you realized this mistake. The higher portions of food had made you and many others sick and unable to stomach much. And now, when it is most needed, it is mostly gone. Storms at sea had been terror-fueled. During the worst, all of you, for hours on end, had been demanded by Maury through the orders of Sereno to keep the ship afloat by pumping water out, seemingly in vain at times given the furious rate the giant waves brought it in. You'd also had to form human chains so as to haul out and throw all the cargo into the water in an effort to lighten the ship's weight. The ship had survived the storm, but it had taken all of everybody's effort. Generally though, amongst the hunger, thirst, storms, and overbearing sunlight that tortures you all for most of every day, it is the boredom that begins to unravel you. You have remained largely silent for months, except for when you join in the singing. You are grateful that you haven't been abused in over a month, but your soul still feels torn from your body. Now the boredom eats at you, as your mind races through all the things you've suffered and what you've lost. You remain slumped in your corner, eyes usually closed, wishing there was more shade and that you could escape there and out of your mind. This lethargy has taken over most of the ship. Only the daily prayers get any movement, and that only from the Muslims aboard, who gather around Babo and face east. And then there is shouting and fearful excitement. It seems that another ship has been spotted, and this is terrible news, as it is likely that they have seen the trail, which floats in a shocking and unkempt state, and would easily arouse the curiosity of any other captain. Soon, the lookout cries that the other ship is altering its course, coming closer, and that a small boat is being prepared to drop into the water, so as to come across to you. 
You all gather any weapons you can find. You will fight to the death to preserve your freedom. Of that, you are sure. You do not for a moment doubt the intent of every person there who has already fallen prey to slavers once. They will not do so again. But Barbo and Maury, after having a brief discussion, inform everyone that you are going to perform a ruse. You need water and food, and if the inquisitive party that comes across is non-violent and you can convince them that the ship is still run by the Captain Sereno, then perhaps they will give you provisions and just depart, leaving you the best chance to still get back home. There is a lot of discussion. Some think this is a terrible idea, and that those on the other ship will likely try and take you all into slavery again. But Babo has the majority behind him, and especially the most vicious men. If the people on the other ship come aggressively, then you will fight. But until they show their intent, you will attempt to fool them that most of the crew have died through hardships and that those who remain on the ship are the survivors, still led by the pitiful Spanish captain, Sereno. The knives and rods are slipped into the fine clothes and robes that you had all sequestered from the hold in the first days of your freedom. Sereno, meanwhile, had also been trying to deal with an actual navigational problem at this moment, only just narrowly missing a hidden underwater ledge and then trying to drop the sails and let the ship float away from it, all while being screamed at by the West Africans to avoid the other ship. You watch as the smaller boat is lowered into the water, and in not too long makes its way from the other ship over to you. They hold up white flags to signal their benevolent intent, and all of you aboard look at each other furtively and take positions as slaves knowing their proper place. The captain is brought out and whispered threats are delivered in his ear by Maury. You imagine what is being said. Sereno is to play along and get what food and water he can from the other ship. Maury is his dedicated personal assistant and cannot leave his side. If he fails to leave this impression, then everybody will die, starting with himself. A balding, slightly fat man, not that old, with hunched shoulders, boards the trail with his men. He introduces himself to the captain as Amasa Delano, an American seal trader, of the ship Perseverance, from which he's just come. Sereno plays his part, sometimes verging on being a little bit too warm and excited towards the American captain in his greeting. They speak in Spanish and another language that you don't know anything about except that it resembles that spoken by the very first men who would purchase you off the coast of Africa. You don't know what is said between them, but to you, looking at him across the deck, Sereno seems to be acting a little desperately. Maurice stands by his side and clearly notices this as well. At one point when Delano looks away because of a commotion at the bow of the ship, Maurice grabs Sereno, pulls him close, and says something fiercely to him. There is anxiety all around. You can feel it. You are all supposed to be playing a role that you despise, the reality of which you have only just cast off. The commotion that had distracted Delano was one of the captured cabin boys, being impertinent enough to try to communicate their plight as captives to the foreign sailors, who were now distributing the food and water that had been brought aboard. One of the former slaves, in retaliation to the boy speaking out, 
slashes out at him, cutting his head. The boy collapses and is quickly taken below decks to be tended to. Delano makes an urgent inquisitive glance at Serenio, who babbles something to him, gesturing that it is nothing to worry about. He then, by the looks of it, indicates that they go to his parlour. Delano complies, and Marie follows close behind. There is no doubt that Serenio's authority over you all would have seemed extraordinarily lax, especially as you all start singing morbidly again as they walk away. After quite some time, they all reappear and Delano prepares to depart with his men. You are all still singing and Serenio looks absolutely distraught. He stands, hands clasping the rails of the ship, looking over at Delano clambering down. Maurice stands next to him, ever threateningly, and again says something in his ear. Authorities will later learn that he was informing Serenio that they will capture the American ship that day, and so have two in which to sail to Africa. Serenio turns away and begins to wander back to midships, and Maurice goes with him. You watch them in disbelief that the ruse has worked. But then, suddenly, the Spanish captain turns again and runs to the edge of the deck, With no hesitation, he launches himself over, following Delano and his men down. You rush over to see that he has landed in the middle of their boat and is prostrate at the feet of Delano, grasping his ankles and half crying, half babbling something that you are sure would be incomprehensible no matter what language you spoke. Delano looks up with horror at you all, and then suddenly others are jumping off your ship the remaining captive sailors who are able to fling themselves after their captain towards this hope for salvation. Babo quickly shouts to Maury to ensure that there are still sailors aboard and several men run off to do so. Those sailors that remain are forced to cut the anchor and set sail. Meanwhile, Delano and his boat have returned to their ship, which is turning its broadside upon you in order to fire its cannon. The trail begins to move in the wind away from the Perseverance, who fires off six shots, which all miss, except one that only hits some rigging. Now you truly must flee, but you have no control. Nobody of the slaves knows how to sail a ship, and now there are very few sailors remaining and no captain. Yet you remain determined that it is freedom or death, and nothing in between. But then the Perseverance, better equipped and with more able men, has sent its smaller boats out after you, and they eventually catch up, rowed by men driven by the pursuit of the profit that will come from seizing this now abandoned ship and its cargo. Barbo and Marie and others fortify themselves in the helm, and everybody takes a weapon and as defensive a position as you can find. Again, you all begin to sink. The men from the American boats begin to shoot muskets at the helm. In the chaos that follows, the sailor, who is steering the ship while being held at knife point, takes the opportunity to escape and flee out and up the rigging. The men in the boats below obviously mistake him for a rebel and shoot him erroneously. There are captive sailors who fled up the rigging when Serenio had jumped, unable to spring off the ship themselves. You watch them start to cut the sheet that holds the sails to the yards, leaving the trail limp and basically immobile. 
but for the wind on its hull. The rowers, because of this, manage to keep up, and for what seems an age, continue their barrage on the helm with their musket fire. Then they begin to board. This whole thing has just been another terrifying and totally alien experience. All of you aboard are ready to fight, but you are also fearful of these demons, the kind of which brought all of this upon you in the first place. You all head now to where Barbo and Maury have been trying to maintain some order and have organized the stacking of crates and barrels, built up as some kind of protective wall. The song has never ended. Through all the shooting and now this, the words continue to pour out from your lips and your soul. You don't know whose words they are or exactly what they mean, but it is a melody that insists that none of you will accept slavery again. When the first man clambers over the gunwale, you make sure to sing louder, as do all the rest. That man charges and is stabbed. You think for a moment that maybe this defense will hold, but that thought is very short-lived. Soon there are too many of them, with lances, running and stabbing at you all. You see Barbo go down, along with several others, and then a sharp coldness slices into you, and you feel the warmth of your insides begin to pour out. You go dizzy, then faint, but then suddenly everything's clear. You are on your knees and you stare at the lifeless face of Barbo, surrounded now by corpses, resting in a pool of his and so much other blood, the blood of those enslaved, but who followed his lead in an attempt at freedom. You don't really feel the kick in your back that drives you to the floor. You've now gone totally numb, but you register the image in front of you changing, turning onto its side. You realize that you are about to die, and you are so thankful. The fear for the first time since you can remember disappears. Your true death was the moment you were taken over a year ago, when everything turned to chains and darkness and despair. This death on the deck of this ship will finally just set you free. Being out at sea, you will then be able to fly across the waves, all the way to the land of your home. But death and its freedom... Do not come. You come too, being dragged along the blood-wet deck, and you catch a glimpse of some of the other rebels being chained up. You see that Maury is one of them. One of the American sailors begins to flay the black skin off one of their backs. Another woman is being raped, whilst two others have been strung up and are being tortured with an iron rod. The rough hands that have dragged you begin to put chains to your wrist and then to your feet, all of it locking you to a ring coming out of the ship's deck. You lie there, bleeding, distraught, and you despair that you are a slave again. You are not dead. You are not free. The main source for the story of the Trial Slave Uprising comes from Chapter 18 of the Memoirs of American Captain Amasa Delano himself, written several years later. Recently, Greg Grandin has completed a masterpiece called Empire of Necessity that we used a lot for our research and telling of this story. 
if you want a very, very detailed account, not only of the story, but a whole lot of the contextual socio-political and economic tomfoolery going on in the world around it, go and pick up a copy of Empire of Necessity by Greg Grandin. While we told a limited version, given it was from the perspective of one person who was held captive for the majority of it, Grandin uses both broad brushstrokes and fine details to tie together Delano's account in his memoirs, with the economic and social restructuring going on in this new, commerce-driven, globalized world of the early 1800s. However, Grandin also highlights the contradictions within an age of liberty that allowed both the rampant capitalism of the slave trade and the impetus for the eventual abolition of slavery. This millennia-old human institution would be abolished outright around the world within only about 70 years of the uprising on the trail. That is remarkable. But it also seems remarkably inevitable in a time when the zeitgeist of liberty would at some point have reached the ears and been spoken from the lips of nearly every person exposed to this new European-driven globalism. As a reference point for this transformative time, in Empire of Necessity, Grandin uses another book, this one called Benito Sereno, and written by the American author of Moby Dick fame, Herman Melville. Melville wrote Benito Sereno to not great acclaim in the 1850s environment of late antebellum America, a country well down the road of tearing itself apart due to the contradictions of 19th century liberty and the institution of slavery. Melville captures some of these contradictions in quite a few compelling ways, and that he is writing the book when he is, during the very death row years of slavery, gives an insight into how these contradictions had been playing on the minds of the educated in societies both celebrating and denying freedom. Melville's book comes largely from the perspective of Delano, who represents the new world, a world that relies on the ambition, hard work, genuineness, and innocence of American capitalism and endeavor, a character birthed on the ideas of liberty and equality. When Delano boards the ship, he is struck by the ineptitude of the Spanish captain, Benito Sereno, who is generally thought to represent the flailing old world of European colonialism, one founded on redundant imperial authority and unearned qualifications like, which family were you born into? In Melville's fictional account of the story that we just told, although generally pretty true to Delano's memoirs, Babo and Maury come together as one character, just called Babo. Exactly what he represents for Melville, writing at a time when literally the most divisive thing in his country was the question of whether it was okay to enslave black people, is the most debatable part of the book. The acts of Babo and the rebels are disquieting to Delano but he is also impressed by what he sees as a unique relationship between master and slaves. Paternalism, the idea that subjugation can be beneficial to a slave's character and life, became a much-wielded argument for pro-slavery advocates in the 18th century. Captain Delano, although an abolitionist in Melville's book, 
still accepts the conventional order of slavery. Perhaps Melville was commenting on how people in his time who were anti-slavery still abided slavery. Delano knows that something is amiss, but his imagination and the nature of his 19th century general racism disavow him of the ability to credit Africans with the aptitude to organize and conduct an uprising as they had done, or to possibly pull the wool over his eyes as they were doing. He sees the lack of authority that Serenio wields, and yet thinks it is because of some benevolent harmony reached between Serenio and Babo, and not because the captain could actually be under the authority of the slave. This naivety, it is believed, represents that same naivety that can be found in much of antebellum America, that Africans were too incapable and inferior to be able to rebel. And yet, another contradiction, despite this racist belief of the inferior ability of Africans to organize, the fear of insurrection still plagued the white population, and especially slaveholders. One particular scene in the book in which Delano begins to question what he was being told, shows Barbo shaving his captain, his master, holding the razor up next to his throat. It is intense, and in a literary sense, Barbo here is definitely the baddie. He represents pure evil, especially for an American readership for whom slave insurrection was an actual thing that could happen. However, no matter his antagonism... The reader never forgets that Barbo is also an enslaved victim and just seeking a way to gain his own and his people's freedom. The liberal sensibilities of some reading Melville would have been confronted by a contradiction of the victim also being the perpetrator. For 1850s United States, this was an explosive question. Was the realm of liberty which was foundational in the mindset of 19th century Americans, itself confined by and enslaved to its dependence on slavery, the suppression of someone else's liberty, all in order to uphold its economic integrity. Was the price of this contradiction worth that integrity? In the 70 years after the occurrences on the trial, the new world would indeed get its comeuppance for this brutal naivety and dependency on economic integrity. Because legitimate slavery was, after so long, about to die. It would be absolutely brutal, and its epicenters of establishment would move from South and Central America, where the effects of the Haitian Revolution, anti-colonialism, and revolutionary liberalism led to the general abolition of slavery by the 1840s. Those centers of slaving power and establishment would move to the United States of Herman Melville's youth. Some of these states were about to undergo a revolution in cotton production and an even greater demand for slaves to run it. The leaders of the trial rebellion were ultimately tried according to the law and executed. Their heads were chopped off and stuck on spikes. As a warning, of the surviving slaves which may or may not include you, depending on how bad you were stabbed in the side and what treatment you did or did not receive, eventually end up being sold in Peru and sent to do whatever task their forced servitude demanded. 
what waited them after all they'd been through were roles as miners, drivers, cleaners, sex slaves, and whatever terrible and or menial job you can think of in 19th century Peru for a slave. Any sense of bond or society that they had built up over the course of their combined ordeal would have been instantly broken as they were split apart, sold separately, and likely never saw nor heard from each other again. We wanted to tell the trial story in the way that we did as the opening gambit on a series looking at the abolition of slavery and acts of rebellion that contributed to it. It's easy to get lost in a lot of the drama, but also in a lot of the political, social, ideological, and economic details that abound the years that humans managed to force an end to human slavery. We thought it important to first try to put ourselves in the position of someone who had to endure the very worst of what the slave trade had to offer. As we move through this series, which we are aiming to create both as standalone episodes, but which will hopefully also flow through from the beginning to the end, we wanted to pay homage to the experiences of the enslaved, whether transported or born into it. We are going to meet some heroes and champions in this series who risked and sometimes lost everything as the cost of liberty, as well as some romantics and bandwagoners who jumped on for the expediency of abolition to their own interests. But through it all, let's keep in mind that millions of people endured the possibility and reality of atrocities on a day-to-day basis, as our character did in this story. The other reason we wanted to relate the story of the trial is that it ties in a lot of the elements of this transformative time that are important to the context in which our rebels are going to rebel. Just as Melville certainly noticed and played upon, the trial uprising brings us from the old world into the new, towards the adventurousness of global trade in a market-driven economy that is fueled by slavery. As he wrote Benito Sereno in the 1850s, Melville would have grown up bearing witness to how wrought his country had become by the institution of slavery, by its rationalization and enforcement, as well as by the defiant actions against it, such as those of Babo and Maury, and by the fear that more and even greater ramifications were about to be felt in a world tearing itself apart by opposing notions of liberty. And so it is that in our next episode, we will find ourselves in Melville's time and place, in the United States in the first half of the 19th century, amongst the slaves, the freedmen, the runaways, the Quakers, and many others who braced themselves and hurled their principles and defiance against the political and social status quo, and against one of humanity's oldest established practices. Next time, on Stuff What You Tell Me. Thanks for listening to Stuff What You Tell Me. Some big thanks go out to Sam Smith. Thank you very much for helping us out, mate. Lending a hand and just being a top bloke. Jesse Cohen for telling us here at Stuff What You Tell Me. Stuff that we can reliably and dutifully ignore. Richard Pendle, thank you very much for writing in to say good day all the way from Omaha, Nebraska. We're pretty certain 
that's the best place in the world. We're very fickle though, and it doesn't take much for us to make sweeping general statements with undue confidence. If you think where you are is the best place in the world, get in touch, and we will boldly make a statement of support and send it out into the potosphere. And thank you, Joe, for coming into your own bedroom to record a podcast on your birthday. Happy birthday, mate. Keep on rebelling and see you next time. This has been a production by Julian Smith and Joe Wegasani, part of the Recorded History Podcast Network.